You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Robert D'Agostino, Professor Robert D'Agostino with Do <coughs> Excuse me. Do Facts Matter? I got a little uh, pollen in the air here, so I may have a little frog in my throat occasionally. Uh, I want to start the show with with a comment. Uh, I hadn't planned uh, to, but uh, this morning I was got a call from the producer here that said that uh, President Trump and his first lady had tested positive for coronavirus. And I said, "Well, you know, these things happen. It's a it's a it's a disease, respiratory disease. It spreads around." I've said that from the very beginning, that it's very hard to control respiratory diseases, and those who are most vulnerable should be protected. Now, I agree that the president is in a vulnerable group, but let, 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 me, let me read you something that I picked up this morning. Trump joins list of world leaders who've tested positive for coronavirus. My, my, my. This is not a unique situation. Hmm? We have... <clears throat> British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, you have Honduran President Juan Orlando Hernandez, Guatemalan President Alejandro Giamate, and Armenian Prime Minister Nicole uh, Pashian, Pashian, I guess is how you pronounce that. Leaders are exposed. Everyone's exposed. And if you're a leader like Trump, if you're a leader of a, of a country, you have to interact with your staff. You interact with people who are who are uh, uh, telling you what's going on, who, who are uh, bringing you up to date. And uh, you interact with people. Of course, you could then, of course, just say, oh, that justifies staying in my basement for the whole campaign. Now, exactly why is... is is a Biden staying in the basement? And will, of course, come out and say, this justifies his remaining in the basement for this campaign because he doesn't have COVID-19, but but uh, Donald Trump does, along with lots of other leaders. I just read the names of some of the world leaders who tested positive for COVID-19. And, of course, what's going on with Biden? I, I, let, me, let me make it plain. Biden is suffering the early stages of dementia, period. Uh, I've talked to psychologists who, who watch him. I've talked to doctors who watch him. And they all agree that he's in one, he's in the early stages or maybe not so early stages. So why did he come through relatively lucid in the debate? Well, there's two reasons. One, because Trump opened his mouth when he shouldn't have and took Biden off the hook. I mean, if you take a look and analyze this, it seems clear to me that what Biden's advisors told us, Biden, was get under Trump's skin as soon as you can and set him off. And Biden, and Biden did that. Biden was the first one to interrupt, not Trump. And Biden interrupted in order to get under Trump's skin because I think they knew, on the Biden side, they had a chance of setting Trump off. And Trump fell for it. All Trump had to do was let Biden talk, and he would have hung himself eventually. Now, so why didn't he hang himself in the beginning? Why there's a lot of expectation that he couldn't get through you know, more than three or four sentences without stumbling and forgetting where he was? And I think that would have happened if Trump let him talk. Here is the strategy. Aside from what I just talked about, about getting under Trump's skin, 
what Biden's staff is doing. Look at his schedule. People suffering from the early stages of dementia are much more lucid, if they're lucid at all, in the morning. And as the day goes on, as they get more tired, and as evening comes, they get more confused and and less likely to, to, to follow a thought. If you take a person suffering from early stages of dementia and you fool the body into thinking when when morning is and when evening is by manipulating uh, the, the schedule, by manipulating darkness and light, you can fool the body into thinking that 7 p.m. or 8 p.m. or 9 p.m. is part of the morning. So Biden gets in there and his body is telling him he's the morning because he slept until what time? Maybe he slept until... 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, even 7 p.m. And therefore, his body is adjusted to, 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 the, to a, a rhythm that, that, uh, that the evening is now the morning as far as the body is concerned. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if Biden slept till, you know 7 p.m. on the day of the, the, the debate. Uh, they're pulling out the stops to protect Biden from the public knowledge of his real mental condition. And they did it successfully by baiting Trump, and they do it successfully by manipulating his biological rhythms. Take it from me. That's what's going on. I say, oh, what do you know, Dad? You don't know anything. Yeah, I do. And the answer is, I talk to people, I read about things, and, uh, you know, uh, Years ago, uh, when I was a social worker, yes, I was once a social worker. In my younger days, some of the kiddies, I guess I look back and say kiddies now, but some of the teenagers I dealt with, uh, and I dealt with quite a few uh, in, in, uh, as a social worker in DeKalb County, Georgia, and later on as an uh, outward-bound counselor for so-called delinquents. And uh, one of them uh, once, once said, uh, Hey, don't ask, don't ask Mr. D'Agostino a question because he'll, 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 he'll know the answer, which is good. Then he'll explain the answer. And so, I mean, he's really a, quote, encyclopedia of thought, encyclopedia of, of uh, knowledge. And I, I'm not saying that I am. I don't know much about professional football or basketball, but eh, other topics pretty good at. Um, and... Uh, but that comes from from reading. I wish uh, wish my students did more reading than they do. And now with the internet, there's knowledge available. I mean, where do I find out where uh, all these uh, leaders uh, tested positive for COVID? I just went to the internet this morning and plugged in uh, world leaders who test positive for COVID, and up pops this article uh, in the uh, on the internet. Uh, Trump's survival chances are over 99%. If, as according to Johns Hopkins doctor, an infectious disease doctor, if Trump does nothing, even at his advanced age, his chances of survival, he doesn't have an underlying morbidity, uh, his chances of survival is 99%. Pretty close. Chances of survival of someone under 19, 99.997%. Three thousands of one percent fatality rate and those who who die are of course uh, have some underlying more comorbidity and for young folks is that active 
Malgari, uh, in, in that if you're suffering from heart disease, even though, well, say you had a problem 10 years ago, but now you're fine, does that still count, or is that saying that... Well, you know, I get uh, uh, life, uh, life, I guess it's called lifeline emails, and I just, uh, I had a heart attack in 2015. So the question is, are there persistent uh, danger signals for another heart attack? And apparently some yes and some no. Uh, I went back on my bicycle after my heart attack, and, you know, within a few months, I was not up to where I had been before, but within a year I was, and I could, uh, and I was a fast bike rider, despite my age, and uh, the only thing that stopped me from riding my bike is getting run over by a car, but if I hadn't gotten run over by a car, I'd still be riding my bike, but unfortunately, the the injury was severe, and it... uh, and it did impair my balance. Uh, I don't obviously look like I've been injured, but uh, uh, I know from my balance that uh, that the injury t- took its toll. Um, not to mention occasional, you know, pain, but uh, it's very occasional. The um, so I think it depends on whether you have persistent. Are your arteries reclogged, things of that sort. Is, is your heart, you know, uh, my heart is essentially normal now. I had a uh, cardiologist. Uh, uh, t- test me about a month ago. I went through the test and things seemed to be fine. I, I think you have to have an ongoing problem. Uh, and of course, if you have an ongoing problem, a heart problem, you are more vulnerable. But more vulnerable doesn't mean you're going to die. It means maybe 5%, 6%, 7%. If you, if you have a comorbidity and are over 70, that goes up somewhat. Uh, look at how many people uh, Cuomo uh, 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 sent to their, their, essentially sent to their death by, by, by ordering uh, uh, nursing homes to take COVID pa- patients back. And if you look at the New York uh, Post expose, a lot of that was done under pressure from the hospital association, insurance association, which are big uh, contributors to uh, Mario Cuomo, and they wanted to reduce their uh, insurance liability. And so they wanted those people out of the hospitals into the nursing homes where there'd be a lot more uh, state state money involved. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, one of the things, and again, I wasn't going to talk about this, but they talk about two hundred and four few years, a few week, uh, excuse me, a few days ago, they were talking about two hundred and four deaths, U.S. deaths from COVID. Yes, that's true. And if you take the fatality rate, it comes close to three percent, which is a good deal higher than typically uh, the flu. However, if you take a look at two states, New York and New Jersey run by Democrats and their policy about forcing nursing homes to take take back COVID patients. You know how many deaths were in those two states alone? 48,000 out of the 204 deaths. 48,000. A lot of nursing home deaths in that. In Florida, which has a, a very old population, the governor of Florida, a Republican, understood the problem and put into to, to policies, protection of the elderly. And it didn't have anywhere near that kind of death rates uh, in Florida, uh, especially in nursing homes. No, very low death rate compared to New York and New Jersey. 48,000. If you subtract those 48,000 deaths, you get a reduction in the fatality rate of probably a little under 2%. 
Uh, I didn't calculate it, but but a, re, a fatality rate of three percent down to less than two percent, or is, is a big jump. One percent's a lot, but spread over the country. Um, and of course, there in other states that had uh, significant deaths also had nursing home deaths. Minnesota had more than their share of nursing home deaths. Also, uh, again, another state run by Democrats. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> one could be very. Uh, crude and, and say, well, you know, the, the hospital group and uh, insurance group in, in New York got what they wanted, a reduction in their liability uh, for, for payment of, of hospital bills uh, by uh, Cuomo, you know, I said kowtowing to their pressure and, and putting uh, people in nursing homes. Uh, anyway, that's a, a side issue. The bottom line is that COVID-19 is not particularly dangerous to young folks. It's less dangerous than the flu. The, the death rate, COVID-19, for people who are young, and I mean even under 40, even under 50, is less than the flu. It starts to accelerate. The, uh, the last time I really looked at the statistics, uh, the only group that has a fatality rate over uh, 1% it are old Old folks, and uh, and that of course is centers on those with comorbidities or those who are locked up in confined spaces. I mean, this idea of you know shelter in place was nonsense. It was it was absolutely crazy. The safest place to be is outdoors, no masks necessary, as long as you don't get into big crowds. So yeah, closing down stadiums uh, and what have you because there's so many people there. That probably was 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 a good idea, but this idea that you can't go outside without a mask is nuts. Being outside is people get a jog. I keep people jogging by and riding bicycles with masks on. Are they out of their minds? I mean, that probably limits the the. It may depending on the study you look at, it may or may not limit the intake of oxygen, but it certainly builds up the possibility that bacteria will grow in the mask and you'll catch something else other than uh, COVID nineteen. Uh, it, it's it's nuts. I mean, a, a bicyclist riding past you, even if you have COVID nineteen, they're going to catch it from you. No, COVID nineteen has to do with dosage. And uh, the time that you're exposed to it, that's why it's probably a good idea. It is a good idea for people who work in the grocery store, Kroger or Publix or Walmart, who are working in the grocery store to wear masks because they're exposed to lots of people over a long period of time. If you go in grocery shopping and you're in and out, the mask really probably does no good unless you have COVID-19 or try to protect other people. I mean, it's a good idea to wear it. It's a matter of courtesy. It's a matter of, you know, the risk may be one in a million to, 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 to catch it or transmit it if, if you go in and out really fast. So, But it's okay. So, obviously, we go grocery shopping and we, um, and we, we wear masks, my wife and I. Uh, we go to a restaurant. We have one of our favorite restaurants here in town in Sandy Springs, a barbecue joint. We uh, They have a, a, a wall that opens up to the outside. So even though you seem to be sitting inside, you're really sitting outside. There's a breeze coming through. There's plenty of ventilation. And we always sit in that section because it's like sitting outside without having to sit in the rain or, 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 or being totally exposed to the elements. 
I think a lot of people have done that with restaurants. We have a Thai restaurant we go to also in, in Sandy Springs, and they have an outside area uh, where they direct their, their, their uh, customers to. And uh, so our two favorite Sandy Springs restaurants uh, both uh, have what, effect, what amounts to outside seating. And so I say, go to a restaurant, outside seating, have fun. All right, now... With that, I really ha- we're planning something else for today's discussion, and I want to tie things up. I, I, ideas have consequences, and I'm going to go from I'm going to start with Woodrow Wilson, and this is all tied up to what's going on today. It, it may take me a while to get there. It may ta- yeah, I may have to follow my argument, but I'm going to follow the argument from Woodrow Wilson to the current progressive movement, which of course for a lot of people is, is, is a religion now that Christianity is on, you know, on the decline and the cultural elites and, and young folks are no longer committed to, to, to a Christian uh, as, as a religion or, or even Judaism for that matter. Um, the, instead, people need a religion and the religion is progressivism. And we'll get to that point and see how we got there. And, and it's a, it's a, an, an evil combination of progressivism, Marxism, and Leninism, uh, with with Saul Alinsky having to birth some of what's going on. Anyway, let's go back to Woodrow Wilson because I think we have a lot of stuff going on about you know Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Absolutely, I agree that she was a brilliant legal mind. Number two, she uh, was very influential, uh, and and number three. She did a lot of damage to this country because she was a continuation of the progressive agenda to subvert the Constitution. So, for good or bad, I'm not. There's an argument, and Woodrow Wilson made it about it's a good idea to subvert the Constitution, that the Constitution has outlived its usefulness, and certainly Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you analyze her opinions, majority dissent opinion, there's no question that she had no real use for the Constitution or most of the Constitution. And remember, and when I get to that point, the Constitution was originally a procedural document. Then they added the Ten Amendments. The First Amendment was clearly substantive. But beyond that, I'm not sure that there was any intent to make the, the 14th Amendment substantive. It was to make process in the states for everyone equal as the states classified them. You know, just because you were a black, you couldn't be classified separately from being a white. But we'll get to the constitutional issues again later on. But I'm going to start with Woodrow Wilson again. I'm going to go back to Woodrow Wilson because this is where the really, in, 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 in a real sense, where the progressive movement got kicked off uh, on the highest levels in this country. And remember that progressive movement was about a couple of things. One, of course, eugenics. Uh, progressive movement completely uh, uh, in, in, in embraced the issue of eugenics and believed in eugenics and believed in sterilization of, quote, inferior people uh, and were, uh, and like Planned Parenthood, pushed abortion big time in, in certain neighborhoods, particularly black neighborhoods. Uh, but 
there's a whole bunch of things we'll talk about, about what progressives really... By the way, eugenics is still a part of the progressive... Um, well-disguised, of course, but still part of their, their the, the progressive agenda. Anyway, here's a quote um, from Woodrow Wilson, and he was, of course, a professor and the president of Princeton University and then president, and he also a well-known racist, but, but he had tremendous influence on, on the way uh, government was perceived and the way government went. And this is a direct quote that, that one of the things he was determined to do, this is a quote, is make the U.S. safe for the modern administrative state. Listen to that, the implications of that statement. Make U.S. safe for the modern administrative state. So the, so the progressive area agenda was to alter the then prevailing understanding of the Constitution or the Constitution's limits and dictates. And the goal here, of course, if you read uh, what Wilson Wilson said and other progressives said, was the modern government, was to make modern government, was make modern government an administrative government and, and and, and it should be controlled and guided by administrative agency experts. That was ruled by the experts. Constitutional separation of powers? No. That was in the way of rule by the experts. Uh, really democratic decision-making? No, not, not truly. And we'll go into that again later on because you get nothing but the left. Oh, Trump's a threat to democracy. Democracy, democracy, democracy. No, they don't believe in democracy. They don't believe in people making decisions. They believe in the experts making decisions, the administrate, the, the, the bureaucrats. And one of the reasons they are so anti-Trump is, guess what? Trump really thinks people are sovereign and should make decisions. And I'll give you a simple, a simple example of how the left has no use for really democratic decision-making. Insofar as they can manipulate the decisions, it's fine. But insofar as they actually want people to make decisions for themselves, uh, absolutely not. You'd much rather have the administrative experts or the courts make those decisions. And a good example is zoning. Under a rule promulgated and, uh, and reversed by the Trump administration, zoning would become a federal responsibility. Yes, local zoning will become a federal responsibility. So local communities which control zoning would no longer be able to control zoning if if there any federal money went into that area whatsoever. And so it would be the experts would decide whether you're going to have single-family homes, high-rises, low-income housing, whatever the federal bureaucrats thought was appropriate for your area would be imposed from Washington. So zoning would be nationalized. Now, zoning is one of the most important local issues. It's one of the most important areas where people in the local community get involved in. Uh, Sandy Springs now has uh, some dispute about enough's enough with development. I mean, it would seem that uh, between uh, the city of Sandy Springs and its previous control by the Fulton County government that, uh, that 
want to turn Sandy Springs, Georgia, into into a parking lot. Uh, and there are certain air, times of the day when it's almost like a parking lot. And there's a lot of pushback now. Enough development, en- enough new apartments, enough new houses. And by the way, <laughs> this development, which of course inc- increased the tax base big time, has also pushed up the price of housing quite substantially. Uh, so in would come the federal government and say, oh no, oh, the housing prices are too high. No more single-family homes allowed. We're going to make high-rise, low-income housing to, so that people... And there's, there's a good deal, a good amount of low-income housing, by the way, in, in Sandy Springs, apartment complexes, garden apartments. Uh, at, uh, and so it's not as if there, there aren't any. Uh, but the... Uh, the government, the federal government, could come in and say, "No, you have to. No more single-family homes. No more expensive high-rises." Where the uh, uh, this is not Sandy Springs, but uh, Dunwoody, they have a new high-rise going up where the uh, prices for the condominiums in this new high-rise start at one point seven million. That's starting. Uh, and, uh, I, I won't be moving in there. I just, uh, I just got a, a, a notice that a gentleman I've known for years and years that everybody knew at one time or the other from Lubbock, Texas. Mac Davis died, oh. and uh, I hadn't heard that. And he died uh, Tuesday, as a matter of fact. So it was uh, some, you know, three days ago. But uh, Mac. And his father used to come in my father's store, and uh, uh, I knew him well before he was anybody. What kind uh, of store was that, David? Well, my dad had a construction store, Uh. uh, paint, lumber. It was a lumber yard, but it was also paint, and had uh, it was just general construction. And uh, uh, his dad was a painter, and bought paint from my dad and uh, mac would come in i remember him when he was in high school before you know he ever really well he had done something but had never been noticed yet but then he skyrocketed to the top and you remember lubbock in my rear view mirror and a number of other songs that he wrote he wrote a lot for elvis presley as a matter of fact well so you some royalties come floating through every so often to the to the heirs right Oh, I would imagine, yeah. Yes. But. I have a friend of mine who, who uh, one of the Elvis Presley songs was written by uh, one of her ancestors, and she gets little checks all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, it's interesting to note that some of this residual, not necessarily that music residuals, but residuals that are paid to actors for their appearance in motion oh, pictures. Sure. But th- those deals were negotiated by Ronald Reagan. When he yeah. was when he was head of the Screen Actors Guild, he had uh, he he was always been a tough negotiator. I mean, people don't realize that that, that Ronald Reagan was first a two a two term president of the Screen Actors Guild, and then they called him back for a third term when there was a crisis. The other actors and actresses said, "We need you back here because we're having a big battle with the with the uh, various uh, companies, film companies, and we need you back." To, to represent us. So he served a third term because of his ability as a negotiator. And we saw that with uh, with the Soviet Union. The only president to ever get an, uh, a, 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 a deal on missile 
with, 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 with Soviet Union. He actually got a disarmament deal. And, he, and they said he couldn't. I mean, look how he was criticized by all the usual suspects, New York Times, etc., for walking out on Gorbachev uh, and, and saying, oh, you turned your back on, on this piece. Well, no, he didn't. And he got the deal that he needed to get to limit uh, the uh, mid-range missiles stationed in Europe. And then you get this whole thing with John Kerry, the Secretary of State for for Barack Obama for a while. And and he's giving a thing, oh, no, we can never do anything, have peace in the Middle East without dealing with the Palestinians. We have to solve the Palestinian problem. We have to do that. We have to do that. It's very important. Well, baloney. The, The Arab states, the Sunni states... They're making deals like crazy with the United States and Israel. And why? Because it's in their interest to make those deals. Helping the Palestinians is not in their interest. Oh, they'd like to do it if they could in a certain way. Of course, they like to use the Palestinians for political purposes. For But because if they really wanted to help the Palestinians, they'd let them come into the countries, right? Yeah. They would actually settle them in the countries and like still making them stay in those uh, refer- refugee camps. I mean, it's, it's the Arab states that won't let them be assimilated ex- with the exception of Jordan. And uh, so here we have... Trump negotiating all these deals in the Middle East that Kerry said were impossible because yeah. you had to you had to deal with the Palestinian issue. No, Obama said yeah. yes. Obama, Kerry, that no people act in their own interests and so do and so do governments. I and mean, it wasn't in their interest to deal with the Palestinians, and when it was in their interest to use the Palestinians for a political tool, they used them. When it no longer was in their interest, and they were more, and certainly they're afraid of uh, Iran and the Shiites uh, uh, group. Uh, Iran's a Shiite company, and, and Shiites and Sunnis have been feuding for a thousand years. Um, they came to the table. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted, one reason I called you early this morning and wanted you to come in, because I wanted, I know the secession and all of this uh, of government, and I'm, you know, were you were you in Reagan's administration when he hit the assassination attempt? Yes. Okay. What I wanted to ask you, we know that it goes from president to vice president to secretary of state. Up no, no, it doesn't. Or, oh, nine more. Not, not any Okay, it goes to uh, Speaker, the of, the Speaker of the House. Yes. Um, I guess that was because of what's his name coming up and saying the secretary of state said, well, I'm in charge. That was during yeah, Reagan's he, he was thing. He was wrong, Yeah, but that's okay. But anyway, so where would... And and I don't. Well, by the way, I just as a, just in order to, the, by tradition, the Secretary of State is the is the uh, chairman of the, of the uh, cabinet meetings, so they traditionally run the cabinet meetings, not the not the president. Very often, the Secretary of State as uh, that's why I think he. Uh, okay, well, what Alexander Hay got confused. Yeah, what I what I uh, well, he was confused a lot of times, even as general. But um, what I what I wanted to ask. And and I don't personally think that uh, Trump is in any, in any danger. I certainly hope not. And we we've, we've taken out different times during the day to uh, ask for prayers for our president and for the United States and for the First Lady. But with that being said, what at this moment we don't know. I mean, nobody can say for sure. But our Preparations? Would they start any kind of preparations this early that if something happens? Well, I think what they would do is probably add security for Pence, the vice president. 
they would, I think, uh, add to, and that's what happened after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, Johnson uh, was, uh, the security around Johnson was increased. And I think that's probably as a precautionary move they would do that. Uh, although there's the chance of there being, look, the only uh, of the leaders who, who got this COVID-19, the only one who got seriously ill was Boris Johnson in Great Britain. And he had a serious bout with with the with COVID nineteen, uh, but um, none of the other leaders apparently got you know recovered fairly quickly without too much. And I suspect that Trump, who's uh, healthy and uh, vigorous, uh, yeah, he's a little overweight, but uh, and that's a that's a downer. But there's no sign that he has uh, diabetes, for example, uh, as a lot of older people are who are less, less overweight. Look, I'm not overweight. I don't think you can say in any way, shape, or form I'm, I'm overweight. I mean, I, I, I got a 32-inch waist, you know, and uh, I'm six feet tall. And, and uh, However, I'm old. And sure enough, my glucose level is not at diabetes level, but the doctor said, you're pre-diabetic. you got to get your glucose level down. And that's it's not so hard for me to do because years ago I gave up uh, – my obsession with ice cream. And, uh, <laughs> I even remember that. Yes. Uh, look, the the the, uh, the the classic story told about me and 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 eating because I was a great eater. Well, I was very active physically. Was uh, when I was a teacher in high school. When I was going to law school at night, I had a good a good uh, good friends who were parents of one of my students, and. Uh, they used to invite me over for dinner once in a while, and I had no money in my pocket, and so I was always happy for a free dinner or some free. So my eating that just amazed them. So one time there's a big joke, right? So they they said they had an hors d'oeuvre. And I said great, and they came out with a half gallon of ice cream, two hmm. bananas. So it was a two banana split with half gallon of ice cream, whipped cream, nuts, syrup, and put it in front of me. I promptly ate the whole thing and then had dinner. <laughs> so it, it's it stunned them. <laughs> and, well, uh, no. I, let's get back to this. Uh, okay, I, I buy that the, they've increased the security on pants. Yes, that obviously makes sense. Sure. Um, would there be any other discussions? No, I don't think so at this point. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sure they were when Reagan was shot. Yeah, because it was very serious. Uh, Reagan almost died. Um, but uh, they, um, no, I wouldn't think there'd be any other discussions. I, I still love Reagan's line. Is the surgeon a Democrat? Yeah, he he's, he was. Well, yeah. Reagan was always good at the quip. He was. Uh, you had to be in his presence to know how funny Reagan could be. He could get a audience, in, private audience, in stitches with his stories. He was very funny, and he, of course. Some of the stories he told about Hollywood were off-color. Yeah. <laughs> but he would never tell an off-color story if there were women present. He was very old-fashioned that way. But if there are no women present, you know, male reporters, male staffers, and especially if Jimmy Stewart was present. That's what I understand. That yes. Cancel his appointments if Jimmy Stewart was there. Well, he'd be late for his appointments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Jimmy Stewart, uh, the only time Reagan, Reagan never let people wait, if, if you could help it, unlike Clinton, who made him wait for half an hour, 45 minutes. I mean, when you're so important, you're the president, you let people wait. But Reagan didn't feel that way, and he was very much on time for his meetings, except when Jimmy Stewart was in town. <laughs> 
then he barred the door. Who knows what was going to happen to the schedule? You know, this is, uh, I kid my host that, uh, and myself, that I do one of the shows uh, with veterans. And I kid, one of the questions I always ask uh, the guest is, can you name one veteran that you know that can tell one story? I don't think there's a veteran alive that can tell one story, and I would imagine Reagan was the same way. That if you started one, you were going to have a hundred. Yeah, he was. He was very good at uh, at that. Uh, and the other thing about Reagan was when he walked into a room, he lit the room up. The the, the, the entire atmosphere in the room would just be just as he walked in, people would. The positive energy was incredible. That's and I was at uh, you know, two very private meetings. Uh, one uh, was a key meeting after he was elected president where I was um, uh, one of the key people. Uh, there was about 75 of us. Uh, I was key because I did some advance work for him during the election in 1980, and I raised money. So I was both on their fundraising list, uh, I bundled some money for him, and quite a bit for those, those years. And... Uh, I was head of the law deans and professors for Reagan, and I did advanced work in Philadelphia for him and, and assisted his legal staff on certain legal issues during the campaign. So I was invited to this meeting. And I don't know if I told the story before, but it's uh, uh, a professor I had hired uh, through, I, I, I headed the hiring committee at the Widener Law School at the time. It wasn't called Widener at the time. Delaware Law School became Widener Law School. And I had a hiring committee, and one person we had hired was Lauren Smith. And Lauren Smith was Ronald Reagan's election law counsel in 1976. So we, I hired him in the meantime, and he became a, Ronald Reagan's election, election law counsel in 1980. And I did some work with Lauren. And uh, Lauren, you know, had knew Reagan, and he said, oh, Bob, Bob, I, I want you to want the president-elect to come and, and, and meet you personally. And I said, oh, my goodness, I, this guy just elected president. I'm going to meet him personally. So Lauren Smith goes and gets Reagan, and he says, uh, you know, Governor Reagan, he wasn't yet president, he was president-elect Reagan, Governor Reagan, he said, this is my boss at uh, Delaware Law School, Widener, now Widener Law School, Robert D'Agostino. And I said, what are you going to say? God just got elected president. What can you say? What can you say? So he grabs my hand, and he said, Bob, you know what, Bob? And I'm looking at him. What is he going to say? I drove in to this meeting past the Arlington Cemetery. They had not mowed the lawn. When I get to be president... And I sit in that White House. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to promulgate an executive order to mow the lawn <laughs> for our heroes. Don't you think that's a good idea? What am I going to say? <laughs> that's it. This was Reagan's way of not engaging in substantive conversations with all sorts of people. And so he would he would go. So so my one chance to talk to him personally, we talked about mowing the lawn at Arlington Cemetery. <laughs> so That's interesting. Yeah, that's one of about ten stories I have about Reagan and uh, that I either witnessed or I, you know, the, the, the infamous story of the family of dwarfs, for example, is another Reagan story. But there's a whole bunch of them that I know uh, that either I saw or, uh, or I, I heard about. Uh, but anyway... Uh, any other questions, Dave, before I get back to... No, I, w I was just curious if uh, there would be any, uh, you know... All right, let me ask this. We Well, Reagan was 
incapacitated for a couple of days, but not really incapacitated. He never gave up his authority, did he? No, not that I can recall. But he was incapacitated for. Well, he was in the hospital a while, but but I mean, at what point would the vice president take over? I don't think I think that Reagan uh, worked through worked through Bush at the time, uh, stayed in contact with the with the Bush and, and the key members of the cabinet. Uh, but in terms of making decisions, uh, I don't think any major decisions were were made or or, or uh, without Reagan's approval, and none were made as far as I remember at that time. Uh, obviously, there was a lot of concern about his recovery because, to truth be told. He almost died, and uh, that was not. The doctors did not report that immediately. Uh, they had to worry about pulling him through first, and uh, but uh, and of course Nancy uh, you know, was very very protective of of and, and limited the people who could talk to him. Uh, but obviously he was in contact with Vice President Bush on a steady basis, uh, and uh, my my feeling about the Bushes has always been the same that. Uh, to, the Bushes are absolutely wonderful people, family-wise. I don't think either one of them was a particularly great president. And I think that the second Bush was one of our, in terms of the consequences of the country, was you know one of the bottom, bottom 10, or bottom 15, I should say. We have 45 presidents, so bottom third. He was the bottom third president, in my view. But as far as today with Pence, yeah. so he's other than additional protection, uh, and I would assume he's being very well posted frequently. Oh sure. Uh, but other than that, there's nothing. No, I doubt there's anything much, uh, any other precautions except to to increase security just in case. Uh, but uh, no, uh, Trump seems just because you have symptoms, even my. If you have the flu, yeah, I mean these are like flu symptoms, and, and in fact, they're mild flu symptoms for most people. Um, so I don't. I think uh, obviously the the Democrats are going. Oh, he's incapacitated. He has to step down. Uh, I mean, all sorts of nonsense from the Democrats. But the Democrats will do anything to seize power. And nothing, nothing, and and that's why I started with Woodrow Wilson because I'm going to trace it from Woodrow Wilson to the current Democrats. And there's nothing. Nothing that they won't do to get power, and and because this the progressive movement goes from the progressives goes to Marx, it goes to Lenin, it goes to Saul Alinsky, and it's tied in with the Democrat Party today and Black Lives Matter and all that stuff. And uh, we have, and I've said this before, this chaos we have is being encouraged by the Democrats. It's pre-revolutionary chaos. And if those of you are interested in history, you may want to take a look at what was going on in Russia starting in 1905 and the chaos, the terrorism, the attack on innocent folks, the attack on the constituted authority. All this was a prelude to the to the uh, the ouster of the czar and, and the revolution uh, led by eventually by Lenin in 1917. So this chaos is 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 a planned chaos. And if you think these riots are are uh, you know, just just happen, hmm. uh-uh, no sir. You got uh, organized Antifa, which are well paid organizers. Black Lives Matter that admit to being Marxist. Well, Black Lives Matter. Yeah, yeah. Antifa is a little bit. Uh, 
revolutionary, than, 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 but Black Lives Matter say openly, they're openly Marxist, and they've said it in no, no uncertain terms, they openly want to uh, uh, overthrow the country, they've said it. And so all these corporations who are giving money uh, to Black Lives Matter, and they're being funded by the corporations, the major corporations. Antifa gets funded by you know the, some of the foundations directly or indirectly Ford Foundation, Rockefeller Foundation, George Soros Foundations, Open Society Foundations. All the Open Society Foundations are, are George Soros controlled foundations, and they all are are funding Black Lives Matter. I mean uh, Antifa directly or indirectly, and the, mostly the corporations are funding the Black Lives Matter organization. You say, why would these corporations do such a stupid thing? What are they doing? They're funding a... Re- they don't... This is a ruler revolutionary uh, uh, alliance. They don't expect... They expect to continue ruling. The, the ultra, We did a study of, of the billionaires in this country, the ultra-rich. Virtually all of them are Democrats. Virtually all of them are involved in services or tech technology. And all of them, virtually all of them, want access to the Chinese market. And Trump interferes with both cheap labor because of his immigration policies and, 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 and because he's insisting on manufacturing come back to this country at the higher wages paid to American workers and because they want access to the Chinese market, and Trump's interfering with that. They don't give a darn about uh, whether Chinese, uh, China becomes the number one world power. They can take over Asia. They don't care. These corporations, they, they're looking at their bottom, bottom line, dollars. And as far as I'm concerned, they're un-American, they're treasonous, and probably should be put up against a wall. Well, <laughs> they're executives. executives. Well, yeah, I mean, the answer is, uh, in a sense, they are treasonous because they, they're certainly uh, uh, putting the bottom line for the corporations, hence uh, Chinese interests above American interests. There's no question about it. You know, uh, what I don't understand, how could anybody in their right mind want communism and want to destroy the greatest country in the world that if it wasn't the greatest country in the world, they wouldn't have their damn positions to begin with. Well, they don't really see it that way because they see it, uh, they, they're globalists. Then they, they, they don't, they consider themselves citizens of the world. So they're looking at the world as a t- uh, 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 and say, well, we need world government. We, we need to have access to all the markets and we need to have access to cheap labor. And Trump is interfering with that. And therefore, he's interfering with our, ultimately where our bottom line. And Facebook, all of them, Google, the National Basketball Association, might be, might be run by the communist Chinese government. I mean, they, 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 they make so much money in communist China that uh, whatever the Chinese government says, that's what they do. And we see that in motion pictures. Uh, you, Hollywood is cutting out stuff that could even be construed as criticism of the of the Chinese Communist government in order to have their motion pictures. Look what happened to the uh, National Basketball Association when one general manager of one of the basketball teams said, I, you know, I sympathize with Hong Kong demonstrators. That team was blocked out. And millions and millions of dollars in revenue uh, was threatened and so the National Basketball Association kowtowed to China. It's money. Money makes the world go round. Remember Cabaret? Money makes the world go round. Yeah. I understand, and I'm not that. I'm not the brightest bulb in the box by any stretch, 
But I understand what you're saying. I also understand what I was taught in school about socialism and communism, which isn't being taught today by any stretch. And I, I just, for the life of me, other than education and our Antifa and the kids that are supporting any of that have not been taught. And Bill Bennett was fantastic today on Fox and Friends. He came out and said, and I've I've been saying this, and then he came out and said almost the same thing, is that we fought the pandemic, but in many, many ways, it's the best thing that's happened to us in that parents have been forced to see what their kids are being taught in schools, and they're not being taught anything. They're not being taught what socialism is. They're not being taught what communism is. They're not being taught history. When you give three pages to World War Two, and basically one page to World War One, that's that's ludicrous. And well, it you is know, ludicrous. I mean, World War One is is the it, it marked the beginning of the end of Western civilization. It's the most significant event of the 20th century. Not World War Two, World War One. No World War One, no World War Two. And, and and you're wrong. They are being taught in schools. Yeah, socialism. And, and they're being taught. Black Lives Matter type materials are being adopted all over the country and they're being taught critical race theory they're being taught all they're being taught that the united states is a racist hopelessly racist country and i don't want to get into it now but i will get into it in a future course i maintain that there is systemic racism in this country and it comes from the left yeah and i will who started the that. KKK? I am writing. I am writing an article, well footnoted article. I'm, I'm a little bit behind schedule because um, my duties at the law school have become uh, quite extensive this semester due to this um, online teaching. We we are we're, I have Zoom classes and I have a couple of classes that are tremendously burdensome and actually make me work. You know, most professors you know, don't work all that hard. But you can you can work hard if you do research, you do, and you work with your students. And I, I've been working with with students in, in the seminar very closely. Um, but in any case, uh, I will once I finish that article. It may take me a few more weeks. I'm sure it'll take me at least a few more weeks because I got so much else else to do. Uh, we'll talk about it. But of course, and. By the way, and, and the systemic racism is exhibited through the Democratic Party. They are, and whether you say, "Well, the progressives are not like the segregations," oh yes, they are. Whether the Democrats were run by Southern segregationists or now Northern progressives, who are really Marxists, the same issue will come. And that is how to keep the black community on. Our, you know why on the plantation? Why why doesn't anyone ever point out the fact that just like you said, black communities, blacks are very racist as well. Yeah, of course. You know, and why doesn't anyone ever point that out? Well, I just point out occasionally. Uh, there's some. There are uh, Pew, uh, uh, P-E-W. Uh, Pew does a lot of uh, uh, surveys, a lot of uh, polling, and if you almost on any issue, 
put down, you know, racism in the communities, attitude toward blacks towards whites, whites towards blacks, uh, uh, whites towards Jews, Jews towards blacks, Jews towards Christians. And over the years, Pew has done a lot of interesting stuff. So my listeners, look up Pew in any topic you want. And there's a chance that Pew has a uh, has some sort of a, uh, a survey on that particular topic. They're really a good uh, place to go for information uh, and for information about how people think, including worldwide. Uh, they do uh, surveys worldwide. You get, you know, what what do people in Israel think of the United States? What do the Arab countries think of the United States? What do Germans think of the United States? And yeah, so you'll find that Germans really liked Obama and don't like Trump. But it's, uh, and I think that was done by Pew. I, there's a few other people in the field, but uh, Pew is very good. Um, for, for but let's 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 talk a little bit about uh, where we are. The the whole theory, and, and this is of course part of the progressive movement, is that government is a living thing, hmm. and so government has to lie, meet the the needs of a living organism as time goes on, and the needs, of course, are those that are defined by the progressive movement. Now, the progressive movement is essentially a utopian movement. And it grows out of the same idea that before the French Revolution and, and, the, and after in certain places, you had this idea, this Christian heresy about heaven on earth. Well, you drop the Christianity part and you make it secular and you have the French Revolution. So all of these progressive movements and, and current modern secular progressive movements really started with the French Revolution. Now, I know some of the historians out there may say it really started with the Protestant uh, Revolution and the Protestant uh, split from the Catholic Church. And, And, you know, ideas have consequences, and you can trace things back as far as you want, but really, we don't have to go further back than the French Revolution to establish a secular utopia. That's what they were and every secular utopia, every utopian thought attracts young folks, to answer what, what David, the producer, just asked about. Young folks are always a sucker. They're the suckers for utopian schemes. They want to be part of something important. They, want to be, they, they look around and they see the injustice and hypocrisy, and they decide that that can be changed if they could just get a new system. So you always have young folks. Who are who are used by the real rulers to intimidate and sometimes kill and certainly in prison the ordinary people. Whether it's the French Revolution, whether it's the brown shirts in the 1930s before Hitler, uh, whether it's the Pol Pot in Cambodia using 14-year-olds to kill his fellow Cambodians, whether it's Mao Zedong and the Cultural Revolution, whether it's Castro in Cuba, all of these utopian movements always relied upon young folks to do their dirty work. And that's happening now. Look who's out there rioting for Antifa and Black Lives Matter. And you look at them, you say, well, all those white kids are out there, too. Yeah, of course. They're pampered white kids from the suburbs that parents give them a Lexus to drive, and they drive into there to to, to join the riots. And, And they... 
it's not just writing for fun and profit, as Ed Banf- Edward Banfield pointed out, the great um, sociologist, 1970 book, uh, I mentioned it before, Unheavenly City, chapter called Writing for Fun and Profit. Uh, so this writing for fun and profit has become a tool used by the real rulers, the real manipulators, to, to create chaos as a prelude to the Marxist takeover of the country. And you say, well, why are these corporations funding this Marxist takeover of the country? Well, because they don't think this is going to affect them. They think we'll go back to the progressive movement of Woodrow Wilson. They are the experts knowing how to make all your decisions. So it's a, a government by experts, big business, big unions, big government representatives get together and make decisions for the whole country. That's what Woodrow Wilson wanted, and Franklin Roosevelt tried that. National Recovery Administration, which was struck down by the courts, deciding what was and was not fair prices. Tailors who charged less, a tailor who charged less money for pressing pants than the other tailors was brought up as a violation of regulations promulgated under the Roosevelt administration. We only have a couple of minutes. Will uh, Barrett be confirmed? I'm not sure. Uh, I, uh, you know, a lot depends upon how fearful some of the senators are, Republican senators. Remember, if things, if the polls are right, the Republicans are going to lose the Senate. So the question is now, if uh, a number of the senators who think they can save themselves by opposing the, uh, uh, the the confirmation until saying till after the election to see what happens uh, she won't be on the other hand if there's a number of senators Republicans who are convinced they're going to win or so convinced they're going to lose that they have nothing else to lose she'll be confirmed but you got to look at the, the now let me there are certain polls state polls done by very good pollsters that show that Trump is doing better than the national polls indicate, uh, and and so so there are, you know, but but even those polls that are more aligned to Trump, yeah, they show Trump uh, winning Michigan, whereas the national pollsters show Trump losing Michigan, but they don't show Trump winning Wisconsin, and they don't show Trump winning Pennsylvania, but they show things much closer than national polls. So a lot depends on what the perception is. If the election were held today and the polls were in any way accurate, Trump loses, the Republicans lose the Senate, and the Democrats hold the House. So the Democrats sweep, and that's the end. That's the end. If the Democrats sweep everything, it's the end of free elections. It's over. Because one of the first things the Democrats do, aside from packing the court, Supreme Court, with leftists, is to amnesty 10 or 11 million illegals and six, seven million votes for the Democrats, the Republicans can never win again because uh, they would uh, immediately pass to citizenship. So it would be, they would establish a one-party uh, state. There's no question that's what the Democrats want to do and that's what they will do if they sweep. And if the American population wants to live in a one-party state, if the American population agrees, and I think they do to a large extent, that the Constitution isn't worth the papers written on, uh, and it's not. In most areas, it's not. The, the progressive movement has succeeded in upending the Constitution, and I'll have to discuss in what ways uh, in future uh, uh, 
show. But uh, it started with Wilson. He said the Constitution essentially had outlived its usefulness because it interfered with with experts running the country. And, And those experts were the heads of administrative agencies and also that the the big corporations believe they'd be part of the ruling group and they could make sure that they weren't subject to undue competition. Remember, one of the uh, utopian schemes and one of the elements of a true socialist economy is the destruction of the petty bourgeois. Well... We're going, I hate to wrap it up, but we got to wrap it up. We're out of time. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.